0: Beginning in the Old Testament with Deuteronomy chapter 6, uh, after we, we see the recitation of the Ten Commandments a second time, and now the application of those commandments. Deuteronomy six, one. Hear now the word of God. Now this is the commandment, and these are the statutes and judgments which the Lord your God has commanded to teach you, that you may observe them in the land which you are crossing over to possess, that you may fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you, you and your son and your grandson, all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. Therefore, hear, O Israel, and be careful to observe it, that it may be well with you, And that you may multiply greatly as the Lord your God of your fathers has promised you. A land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. And you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit down in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So it shall be when the Lord your God brings you into the land of which he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you a large and beautiful cities which you did not build, houses full of all good things which you did not fill, hewn out wells which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant, when you have eaten and are full, then beware, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage." You shall fear the Lord your God and serve him and shall take oaths in his name. In the New Testament, Matthew chapter 28, verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some hesitated. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, The grass withers, the flower falls, but God's word abides forever. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do come before you and we thank you for these words, both the exhortation for the people of God in the Old Testament to love you with all, to claim you as their own, and also to diligently teach their children, to raise them up, to disciple them in the Lord. And also here, the discipleship mandate that we have been called to follow and to promote, proclaim. We thank you, O Lord, for the faithfulness of your covenant servants, that we Gentiles have heard the gospel. They have gone out to out all the world, and they have made disciples of Jew and Gentile-like down through the centuries, and now with us. We walk in their footsteps. We pray that you would enable us to hear this call to disciple the nations, starting with ourselves and our families. And so we ask for your blessing. Speak, Lord, from heaven through your word, we pray. And give us a teachable spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, What do you think of this statement? Sin amazes me. Agree or disagree. Sin blows me away. Overwhelms me. There are so many different kinds of sin, both inwardly and outwardly. It's amazing. And like I've said before, sin is insanity. If we truly understand who God is and our sin is against him. Every sin is an act of insanity. But one of the things that uh, amazes me is that God has given us something to unite the church, and yet we find ways to divide the church. Take, for instance, the sacraments. What is the purpose of the sacraments that Christ has instituted? The Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 27, says it this way, sacraments are holy signs and seals of the covenant of grace immediately instituted by God to represent Christ and his benefits. Shouldn't that unite us? Christ and his benefits. And to confirm our interest in him Also to put a visible difference between those that belong unto the church and the rest of the world. And to solemnly to engage them in the service of God in Christ according to his word. But in particular, to put a visible difference between those who belong to the church and the rest of the world. One of the purposes of baptism, one of the purposes of the Lord's Supper is to set that division. But the problem is, we divide over other things. Instead of dividing, yes, in Christ, in Adam. okay, We divide over the mode. How it's done. We divide over whom? The minister. We divide over the meaning. And we divide over the merit. That which is intended to unite us, ends up dividing us as a church. Even among brethren who claim to be Reformed or Presbyterian, there's still division about baptism, isn't there? And so I want us to take a moment to focus on our text this morning. Baptism is mentioned there, isn't it? It's one of the supporting verbs of make disciples. That's the main verb, make disciples, going baptizing, teaching. Those are supporting verbs, but it does address that. And so we need to properly understand Matthew 28 as we address this, especially as we're about to baptize 11 people this morning. Here's a summary. What is baptism? Baptism is a sign and seal of God's love. Baptism is not what we do. Baptism is focusing on God and what He does. It's a sign and seal of God's love and His promised blessing. The focus is on the Word of God, the name of God. Notice baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And so baptism is primarily about God. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's what we have to keep in mind here. Now, I've placed in the bulletin, in the outline, Heidelberg Catechism question 74. This is how we understand what about children of believers. And the question is asked, are infants also to be baptized? And the answer is yes, for since they, children of believers, as well as their parents, belong to the covenant and people of God. And through the blood of Christ, both redemption from sin and the Holy Spirit, who works faith, are promised to them, no less than to their parents. They are also by baptism as a sign of the covenant to be engrafted into the Christian church and distinguished from the children of unbelievers, as was done in the Old Testament by baptism in the place of which in the New Testament, baptism is appointed or instituted by God. So the focus of baptism is Jesus the Christ. The focus of baptism is the promised and victorious King of Kings. Just like the Lord's Supper, the focus is Jesus Christ and his accomplishment on the cross, death and resurrection. So the first question to ask is who are the initiators? In other words, who's the ones that are doing the baptism? And the answer is not the recipients. And the answer is not even the administrators. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, let's go to the text. Verse 18 Jesus came and spoke to them, All authority has been already given to me in heaven and earth, going, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. So baptism is what's done to the individual being baptized. The Bible does not teach that you are allowed to baptize yourself. All Christians practice that. It would be a weird I baptize myself in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's not what the text says, does it? An authorized representative of Jesus Christ baptizes them. So it's not, the initiator is not the disciple that's receiving baptism. The initiator is not even the administrator. There was a big controversy within the church back and around the time of Augustine, well, this minister denied the faith, and so everybody that baptized, their baptism is not valid if he baptized them. And the church said, no, it's not based on the holiness of the minister. It's based on Jesus Christ. Is he holy? Is he righteous? And the answer is Yes. So who are the initiators? It's not the recipients. It's not the administrators. And this is a strange thought. Baptism is not about the person who gets baptized. That's not the primary focus. Do you understand that? In the formula, in the statement, what? who's the focus? Name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So baptism is about God. The Lord's Supper is about God. The sacrament's about God. God institutes, that's the focus. So who's the initiator? The triune God. As the Westminster says, instituted by God. One author, Bromley, says it this way. Baptism declares, signifies, and seals not what I do, but what God has done, is doing, and will do for me. How does he base that? What does he base that on? The name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What is a name in the Bible? Name is what we've talked about this many times. The Name is a revelation of a person and their work. Think of the word reputation. A person and their work. And so the focus of baptism is the name of God. What in particular about the name of God. Well, it says the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. What what does the Bible teach concerning the Father? Why do we call him Father? Because he's the initiator. He created us. He sustains us. Salvation is being given the ability to say to God, Father, Abba, Father. Can we naturally in Adam do that? Can we say, our father who art in heaven, can we claim God is our father if we're in Adam and not in Christ? The answer is no, we're lying to ourselves and to others. What has to happen before a child can say to an adult father or mother, think of Mela has a new mommy and daddy, a new father and mother. Why? Because they adopted her. And now she can say daddy. She can say mommy. What about us? Can you say Abba, Father? Can you say our Father? My Father, my Heavenly Father. Only if he adopts you. If he's chosen from eternity, you. You understand that? Baptism is the act of the Father Signing the adoption papers. It makes a formal declaration that you belong to the Father. You're a child of God. You're a son, you're a daughter of God. And so, baptism declares the election of the Father, the divine initiative of grace. And we read earlier from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6, and just real quickly, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spirit, every blessing in, uh, spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. Just as He chose us in Christ before the foundations of the world and present, and predestined us to adoption from eternity. Chose us in Christ, predestined us to adoption. Wow. Who's doing the work? The Father. Does that bring comfort to you, knowing that it's a father that chooses and what he chooses gets accomplished? Yes. So it points to the choosing of the father, election of the father. Second, it points to the reconciliation of the son. In one sense, baptism is ultimately tied to the baptism of Jesus. When was Jesus baptized? There in the Jordan. When John the baptizer said, I need to be baptized by you. What are you doing coming to me? And Jesus' response is, thus it must be done in order to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, I must obey my Father's command, my Father's will. I must be baptized. It's my anointing. At that moment, He was anointed with the Spirit. And he says so, reading Isaiah in the synagogue, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me. When did that happen? At his baptism. And so the baptism points to Christ. Jesus is the Christ, the anointed, and his accomplished work of reconciliation. A reconciliation, he had to go through a baptism of fire, We call it the cross. His baptism saves us, as Peter says. It's his baptism that saves us, the cross and the resurrection. So baptism points and celebrates what Christ has accomplished. And thirdly, in the name of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, it is the Holy Spirit who takes and takes a dead person, and brings them to life. How does he do it? He applies the gospel. He applies the work of Christ. Think of Cornelius, the Gentile, who has this vision and calls for Peter, as Acts chapter ten. What happened? Peter arrives. He starts preaching the gospel, and he gets interrupted. By the Holy Spirit. I find that to be somewhat comical. To him, that is Christ, all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. And while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell on all those who heard the word and those of the circumcision who believed were astonished. As many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also, for they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then Peter answered, Can anyone forbid water, that these should not be baptized, who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then they asked him to stay a few days. Isn't that interesting? Peter was interrupted in preaching the gospel by the holy spirit yet he, he applied the gospel here we see god's sovereign activity of the spirit and again i've been skipped i skipped my coverage there in ephesians if you want to go back and look at ephesians chapter 1 verses 13 and 14 there it talks about inheritance and sealing and all of that so salvation and regeneration the wor- is a work of the Spirit. When Jesus talked to Nicodemus, he said, what about being born again? How does it happen? He says, it's like the wind. The wind comes, the wind goes, it blows you. You don't know where it came from. You don't know where it's going. You don't cause the wind. So is the Spirit. He does what he wants, sovereignly does what he wants. The regenerating work of the Holy Spirit is not based on my consciousness or confession of faith. It's He's sovereign. He does what he wants when he wants to do it. So baptism points to the election of the Father, the reconciliation of the Son, the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. It glorifies the triune God. Again, Bromley in his book, which I highly recommend, by the way, Page 33 summarizes it this way. Baptism was instituted to witness to the name and act of God into which we are caught up in faith. It is our baptism and confession of Christ only because it is Christ baptizing and confession of us. Baptism finds its basic and central meaning as a sign and proclamation of the work of God whereby the righteousness of faith is sealed to us. It is only secondary and derivative, meaning as a confession of our own faith and conversion. So the primary focus, who is the initiator of baptism? Short answer, God. This is his sacrament. He's established it. Second question, well then who are... The initiated, who are those that are received through baptism? Again, notice it is not the initiated are not the initiators. They are baptized by another, not oneself. Again, that's that point. So who? Believers. Believers in what? The name of God. The focus is on the name of God. And believers are to be baptized, are to be made disciples. So do we believe in believers' baptism? The answer is yes. And their seed. Oh, I, bro- I messed it up. We believe, and we're going to have one adult baptism today, a believer's baptism, credo baptism and his children. Again, why? Because the children of believers belong to Jesus. If you belong to Jesus, if you believe in Jesus, if you're in Christ, so is your car. So is your house. So is your bank account. And so is your family. They all belong to Jesus. Covenantal understanding. Notice the catechism again. Our infants will be baptized, yes, for they, as well as their parents, belong to the covenant and people of God. And the promise of the gospel is to them, no less, than to their parents. They are to be distinguished from the children of unbelievers. And so the idea is they belong to God. God claims the children of believers. And they are to be distinguished uh, from the world. Cornelius Trim says it this way, and I thought he had a good statement. Can the children of believers also be described as called to be saints? His answer is yes, for these children live under the claim of God. Carried along by their parents, they too traveled down God's sacred path. Even their birth stood under the power of God's determination. God gave these children to their parents by means of the institution of marriage to which God had once again laid claim. These children belong to their parents, but these parents belong to Christ. Therefore, we may legitimately identify these children as belonging to Christ. Together with their parents, they are placed on the road traveled by those called to be saints. In other words, disciples. 1 Corinthians 7.14 lest your children were unclean, but now they are holy, Paul writes. So they belong to the covenant and people of God, as well as their parents. So what are they initiated into? So we talked about who's who initiates, who are the initiated, and my third point is, what are they initiated to? In a word, it is discipleship, parents. We read Deuteronomy chapter 6. Is there a command of God to Christian parents to disciple their children? The answer is yes. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and you shall teach it diligently to your children. When? During Sunday school? When you sit down? When you get up? When you're driving? When you're sleeping or getting ready for sleep, what is he saying? All the time. Your children are raised in that covenant family relationship. Discipleship. Does discipleship include the gospel? And the answer is yes. Here's a good question Are you if you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, do you preach the gospel to yourself? Do you? How often? Well, I believed, in, I believed the gospel when I heard it, so I don't have to think about it. No. How often do you preach the gospel? Or as, uh, as the Africans in uh, Uganda say to one another, brothers, meet one another and say, have you seen the cross today, brother, sister? Do you do that? Do you preach the gospel to yourself? If I'm following Jesus, I need to be reminded of his death and resurrection. I've seen the cross, yes. It's an empty cross. It's an empty tomb. Do you do that? Do you preach the gospel? Do you confess your sins? Do you confess your Savior? How often it should be? How often should it be? Every day, all the time, right? Do you preach the gospel to your children? Should you? Every day, all the time, right? So it's discipleship. We're called to disciple God's children, and that is a responsibility. Here's a, uh, something I didn't mention last Sunday. We are looking at Ephesians chapter 6, and uh, children, obey your parents. And one of the, somebody said afterwards, boy, you sure hammered the kids. What about the parents? Well, maybe I'll do that next week. Um, but did you notice the phrase, children? Obey your parents in the Lord. So the par- children of parents who are believers are in the Lord, Paul says. That's very important. I don't know if you get that. Children of believers belong to Jesus. Because the believed parents' believers belong to Jesus. So it's discipleship. In the Old Testament types, we have that death and resurrection with Peter. Speaking about the flood, with Paul speaking about the Red Sea. They said, he said they were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Who was baptized? The covenant people of God. Adults and children. Two million people passed through the Red Sea. Paul says that's a baptism. So, what does baptism point to? The remission of sins, the canceling of the old life of sin. And points to regeneration, the work of, sovereign work of the Spirit who moves when he wills. Focusing on the new life and eternal life in the Spirit. And so what are we called to do as believers in Christ? Are you called to die to self? Put off the old man. Put on the new man. The Catechism says it this way. What is the dying of the old man? Heartfelt Sorrow for sin, causing us to hate it and turn from it always more and more. And what is the, the making alive of the new man? Heartfelt joy in God through Christ, causing us to take delight in living For Jesus, according to his will. Uh, If you want to, I'm not going to read it. My time, I'm gone too too long, too fast, or too long. Uh, If you want to, uh, there is in uh, Westminster Confession, uh, a larger catechism, question 167. And in question 167, how is our uh, baptism to be improved by us? So the question is, what do we do with baptism? It's just the one-time-only kind of thing, and, okay, I've been baptized. No, he goes on to, point by point, to use baptism to remind us about Christ, to remind us about our relationship with Christ, to remind us of our sin and our need for forgiveness, and on and on. So I, I'm not going to read that. I'm going to leave that. Uh, it's up front here if someone wants to take a picture of that or whatever, um, if you want to do your own studies. I do want to close, though, with A quote from, again, from Bromley. What are they initiated into? Baptism was instituted to witness to the name and act of God. Did you catch that? That was at the beginning. Baptism witnesses to God. It's the glory, it points to God, his name and his acts into which we are caught up in faith. It is our baptism and confession of Christ only because it is Christ's baptizing and confession of us. Baptism finds its basic and central meaning as a sign and proclamation of the work of God, whereby the righteousness of faith is sealed to us. I'm sorry, I read that earlier, but it's good to remind us. He goes on to write, Baptism is a sign whose significance can never be extinguished in this life. It speak, speaks to us of new birth as our initial entry into Christ and his work on our behalf. It speaks to us of lifelong renewal of our ongoing identification with Christ in his substitutionary dying and rising again. It also speaks to us of the resurrection as our definitive participation in Christ and the death and resurrection that he underwent vicariously for us. In other words, baptism is something that's done in the past has ongoing effect in the future, and it points to our resurrection, to the future. Its significance is never exhausted in this life. And so again, this ceremony, this sacrament, points to God's unilateral covenant of grace. He imposes grace. His work. Amen? Amen.